Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast presents Stories from the Cabin, a storytelling podcast within a podcast, featuring tales from the countries and cultures whose people make up the diverse region we know as Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of Stories from the Cabin. I have a special one for you, at least I think it's special, because it's a unique story that you can actually experience firsthand if you happen to be in the mountains of western North Carolina. It's a spooky phenomenon I've spoke about before called the Brown Mountain Lights, and you can listen to plenty of podcasts out there and read plenty of stories and firsthand accounts about the Brown Mountain Lights, but this one I've taken from Friend of the Show, The Devil's Tramping Ground, and Other North Carolina Mystery Stories, by John Harden from the University of North Carolina Press in 1949. The phenomenon of the Brown Mountain Lights was something I heard about when I first started visiting Appalachia back in 2005-2006. I became more aware of the history of it from the Monster Talk podcast with Blake Smith and Karen Stolzno. And I think at the time, maybe Ben Radford was still on the show. Not that any of you need to know that, but there you go. Their guest on that particular episode of Monster Talk, I believe, was Joe Nickel, who was a repeat guest and friend of their show. And his episode on the Brown Mountain Lights talked about his experience hiking and camping through the area and what he thought the phenomenon was, scientifically speaking. Blake had mentioned wanting to do like a Brown Mountain Lights slash Bigfoot camping expedition in the area since Blake is from Georgia. He thought, you know, we could all get together and Monster Talk fans get together and camp and hike in that area and see what we could see. And of course, it hasn't happened. But I did reach out to Blake and and Joe Nickel and try to get a little more specific. Where can I find these lights? And I got Joe Nickel's little hidey hole idea. You know, oh, if you go here, but turn off here. It's this wonderful little message I've saved that I would share with you, but it's kind of like a family recipe. I'm, I'm going to keep it secret for myself until I can actually go check it out and see for myself if it's if it's worth it. And for those of you who do not live in North Carolina or the United States, you can find plenty of videos and other research done on the Brown Mountain Lights all over the internet. But for now, I'm going to read you the story of the Brown Mountain Lights. As I said, from The Devil's Tramping Ground and Other North Carolina Mystery Stories by John Harden. In the majestic mountain country of western North Carolina is the highest peak east of the Rockies. This well-known formation is Mount Mitchell in Yancey County. I'm going to interrupt the story right off the bat and let you know at the base of Mount Mitchell is a beautiful little campground by a stream. I had just gotten back from a week-long trip in New Mexico where I hiked the La Luz Trail in the Sandia Mountains. It was seven and a half miles straight up with an elevation gain of like 3,200 feet and then back down. It was incredibly intense and a lot of fun, absolutely beautiful, but it was one of the hardest hikes I've ever done. Then I came back and decided to spend a few days outside of Asheville and hiked Mount Mitchell, which is, as the story said, the tallest peak east of the Rockies. It's not an easy hike, but it was really cool to camp out next to a stream at the base of the mountain and then literally take the footpath straight up to the top and hike straight back down to the campsite, take a nap, pack up, and head home. So anyway, back to the story. 
Western North Carolina also boasts of Klingman's Dome, Grandfather Mountain, Chimney Rock, Linville Gorge, Blowing Rock, Table Rock, and others. They are all widely publicized and well-known peaks, mountains, and formations. But perhaps the most famous of all the Western North Carolina hills is up in Burke County, not far from Morganton. It is not a very high mountain. There is nothing remarkable about its formation. There are no sensational lines, peaks, or cliffs. It has, in fact, a rather commonplace name, in contrast to some of the more picturesque destinations that have been given to certain points in the land of the sky. This mountain is known as Brown Mountain. It isn't, in truth, much of a mountain as mountains go. It lies somewhat in the foothills of the Blue Ridge and is only 2,600 feet in elevation but its fame lies in certain mysterious lights that have long hovered over it during the night. These lights, known for many years as the Brown Mountain Lights, not only have attracted the attention of the people of this state, but have aroused the curiosity of a nation as well. In fact, this interest has been of such extent that two separate and formal investigations have been conducted by the United States Geological Survey. The lights are extremely faithful and make their appearance with remarkable regularity when the weather is such that the presence of the lights can be checked on. Sometimes they can be seen and sometimes they can't. But usually in fair weather, not too much patience is required for a look at the bobbing lights. Persons who wish to see the lights can take up their position at Wiseman's View on Highway Number 105 near Morganton at about 8 o'clock in the evening and look to the southeast. The Linville-Grandfather Mountain area is also a vantage point. Suddenly there will appear a light about the size of a toy balloon. It is very red in color, and it will rise over the summit of the mountain, hover there momentarily, and then disappear. In a few minutes the light will appear again, but at another point on the mountain. And so, through the night, the lights appear, disappear, and then reappear at different points around the mountain, but nowhere else. As is the usual thing in such cases, the observers have never quite been able to agree on just what they see. To one observer, the light is pale, almost white, is restricted to a definite circle, reappears several times in rapid succession, and then fades out for 20 minutes, only to reappear in the same circle. Another formal report made by an observer several miles away saw the light soon after sunset. It was a glowing ball of fire, he said, yellowish in color. It persisted for half a minute, and then disappeared. To this man, the light appeared as a bursting skyrocket, only much brighter. To some, the light seems stationary, and to others, it moves about in different directions. A minister once wrote that the lights appear to him as an incandescent ball of fire. The theories advanced to account for the lights are many, varied, and sometimes as fantastic as the lights themselves. The superstitious see in them manifestations of the supernatural, Students of the earth and its formation have tried to explain the mystery through deposits of mineral ores. Boyish pranks have been considered, although it would have been a pretty long drawn out prank or succession of pranks by succeeding pranksters. But the lights have been so alluring that scientific minds have devoted hundreds of hours of study to the matter. Interested persons have spent months of time in contemplation and reams of paper have been consumed in stories written and theories advanced. A great number of strange and uncanny stories have sprung from the existence of the lights. Everybody who has seen them apparently has some theory about the brown mountain lights. Of course, it has been suggested that the strange light is a will-of-the-wisp, 
but this theory does not hold because there are no bogs or marshes in the vicinity. Others suggest phosphorus, but that element oxidizes rapidly and is never found in the free state. Still, others say it's foxfire, but the light is too pale and feeble for this classification. It has been suggested that beds of pitchblende ore, from which radium is derived, are present in the vicinity. But even if this were true, there would be no light because the rays from radium are invisible. And, supposing radium rays were visible, they would give off a constant glow and not the intermittent and spasmodic gleam of the brown mountain lights. However, the geologists have settled once and for all the matter of a possible geological explanation of the puzzle by announcing that Brown Mountain is composed of ordinary cranberry granite with no strange, weird, or interesting additions to that base. Hydrogen sulfide and lead oxide were reported in the vicinity and the lights have been attributed to this. Then there is the theory that the moonshiners operate on the mountainside, firing their stills on the distant hillsides at night. And, of course, it is quite likely that contraband has been made on those very hillsides, but this still doesn't explain the intermittent character of the lights as seen from vantage points at some distance away from the mountain. St. Elmo's fire has been brought forward in explanation. This is an electrical discharge which accompanies a thunderstorm under certain atmospheric conditions, especially at sea. But since the lights appear when there is no storm, and when the skies are clear, this theory, like many others, has had to be discarded. Someone tried to apply the theory of the Andes lights. This is a phenomenon of the high Andes, where silent discharges of electricity pass through the clouds to the mountain peaks. This discharge produces a light with a circular border that is visible at great distances. But the Andes lights, so-called, appear only at very high altitudes, some 15,000 feet or more. Brown Mountain is much too low in elevation for the Andes lights phenomenon to occur there. Then the desert mirage theory was advanced. There was some reasoning that air currents of different densities and inequalities in temperature might produce reflecting surfaces from which the brighter stars could be reflected. Carl A. Witherspoon Jr. is one who sticks to the Mirage explanation. He said of the Brown Mountain Lights that it is, quote, not one of those things you think you see, but an actual transmission of light through heat layers acting as lens and prisms and projected on some barrier or mist or dust particles. William V. Dodge belongs to this same general school. He wrote that his grandmother... Emma J. Dodge had a summer cottage at Linville Falls and that he had visited there often. During practically every one of my visits there, he writes, I made it a point to see the lights, usually from Jonas Ridge or Bald Ground, both of which are marvelous vantage points, and I have formed a conclusion. It is the best explanation by the seeming pool of heat that every motorist has seen on a paved highway somewhere in front of him which pool reflects oncoming cars, etc. Now, it is my theory, when the cool air comes down from the valley, from the higher mountains to the northwest, this cool air forces the warm valley air to rise, and as Brown Mountain is a long, low, flat ridge, it will move slowly over this ridge, reflecting stars or any other light by a distortion of the atmosphere. Most people will grant that it is a distortion of the atmosphere, I think most of them will try to visualize a light reflecting from somewhere on the ground, but they strike a dead end when they try to explain that the lights were just as bright as ever after the Great Flood of 1916. 
when no lights were to be had on the ground. I can't ever recall having seen the brown mountain lights when the sky was overcast, thus strengthening my conviction that the lights are reflections of stars, caused by a distortion of the atmosphere, which is in turn caused by warm valley air being forced over brown mountain by cold mountain air. Dr. J. H. Brendel, a Methodist minister, first heard about the brown mountain lights from his grandfather, who had said that the light rose up from the mountain something like a moon to remain suspended there in the air for a time and then fade out. When he was a veteran minister, Dr. Brendel was sent to the Table Rock Charge of the Methodist Church near the heart of the Brown Mountain Lights country. His interest in the story his grandfather used to tell him was revived, and Dr. Brendel talked to many old and young people about the lights. From them, he got the impression that the natives regarded newspaper accounts and attempted scientific explanations to be generally erroneous. No explanation was satisfactory to these people. Late one dark and sultry August night, Dr. Brendel wrote, I came home with my family to the parsonage. We had been to a revival service. As we got out of the car, one of my sons looked toward the west in the direction of Brown Mountain and exclaimed, Look, there's the Brown Mountain light. We looked, and there was the light several feet above the mountaintop. It looked to be larger than any star, was cone-shaped, and appeared to be something on fire. While we were looking, another one, not so large, came up from the eastern side and soon flickered out. Another came up from the western side and did the same way. We looked through a field of glass and found that it looked even more like a ball of flame. It slowly rose higher, growing smaller all the while, until it finally went out. Dr. Brendel was seeing with his own eyes the thing that his grandfather had told him as a boy, how a light would rise from the mountain, suspend in air, and then fade out. A physicist who went to the scene quickly hit on the theory that what was seen from Rattlesnake Knob was locomotive headlights, that a headlight on a locomotive or an automobile would cast a beam of light, like a searchlight, not a ball of light as this appeared to be. Those hardest to satisfy with an explanation of the brown mountain lights are the people who live in the vicinity and have grown up near the lights and in year-to-year -year association with them. Early in 1947, J.A. Hartley, a veteran state fire warden from that mountain area, reduced to writing his theory that the lights were there by divine power. He said, If God could make Brown Mountain, could he not also make the lights? He added, I have lived for 60 years in sight of Brown Mountain. From 1914 to 1922, I supplied the state hospital at Morganton with beef cattle. This caused me to travel the old Jonas Ridge to Morganton at all times of the night. This road leads about two miles south of the base of Brown Mountain, and I have seen the lights looking north from this road. At that time, from a distance of 20 miles looking north, this was part of the Pisgah National Forest in a vast wilderness. No automobiles could travel there, and no voices were heard there save those of God and the black bear. On Linville Mountain, you have between you and Brown Mountain, looking north, Ginger Cake, Short Off, and Table Rock Mountains. This chain is much higher than the Wiseman's View Overlook. Therefore, it excludes any view of Brown Mountain. I have served as a state fire warden for 30 years and have fought forest fires on every mountain from Linville Falls to Blowing Rock at all times of the night, and have seen these lights a great many times from Grandfather Mountain above any human habitation. 
It is true there were hunters with lanterns, but please tell me whoever saw a lantern ascend up into the elements where no game exists. This divine power explanation is typical of the feeling that residents of the mountain country have toward the phenomenon, oddity, reflection, illusion, or what have you. Brown Mountain natives argue energetically that the scientists are all wrong. They like to recount the tale of a woman of that region who disappeared about 1850. There was a general suspicion in the area that the woman's husband had murdered her. Almost everyone in the community turned out to help search the mountainside for her body. One dark night, while the search was on, strange lights appeared over Brown Mountain. These were not like any lights that anyone in the searching party had ever seen before. Some were scared and contented that the lights bobbing away there were in fact the spirit of the dead woman come back to haunt her murderer and maybe to keep people from searching for her body. The search ended without even a trace of the woman, unless possibly some blood stains found on a stile could be traced to her. The husband explained these stains by saying they came from a pig he had butchered a few days before, and which he had carried across the fence by way of this stile. A little while after that, a man who was relatively a newcomer to the neighborhood left the community with a fine horse and wagon that had belonged to the missing woman's husband. The husband said that the man had bought them, but everyone knew that the newcomer had shown no evidence of having money. He was never heard from again, but people assumed that he had either helped with the murder or had known of it and had been bribed to leave. But the body was eventually found. Long years afterward, a pile of human bones was found under a cliff. These were identified as the skeleton of the missing woman. This legend accounts for the first time that the Brown Mountain Lights are said to have appeared. They have been seen at intervals in all the years since, down to this day. In 1922, a federal government geologist was assigned to make a survey and study of the Brown Mountain Lights phenomenon. He arrived in Burke County with a complete layout of scientific equipment for the job at hand. He had topographic maps, a plane table, telescopic equipment, a barometer, compasses, flashlights, camera, field glasses, and so on. This man observed conditions and made a careful study extending over several weeks. With his map spread out and his equipment mounted in place, he sighted landmarks, plotted lines, and worked with angles. In his final report after making this careful survey, he said the brown mountain lights came from a wide variety of things. He reported that 47% of the lights were caused by automobile headlights, 33% by locomotive headlights, 10% came from fixed lights, and 10% from brush fires. It was this man's contention that, although the lights seemed to hover over Brown Mountain, actually they originate beyond. Highway and rail traffic, homes or other fixed objects, some of them in the broad valley beyond the mountain, together with an occasional brush fire, supply the mysterious dancing lights over Brown Mountain. These conclusions, complete with certain scientific data to back up each of them, were viewed with some disdain by the older residents of the community. These residents said that the Brown Mountain lights were visible before there was any railroad through Burke County or in that section of North Carolina. They were also visible even before the invention of the automobile, much less its use on non-existent highways in the mountains. And then it was also pointed out that the lights had never been known to appear after a long dry spell. That blasted the brush fire part out of the theory. One native stood with his back to both the highway and the railroad, and in that position still witnessed the mysterious lights as they appeared above the mountain crest. 
To this he added a final convincing proof, which tends to render completely negative these findings. In 1916, during the Great Flood in western North Carolina, trains and automobiles did not operate in that area for a week or more, but during that time, the Brown Mountain Lights appeared as usual. Apparently, some other solution must be sought, and while an explanation satisfactory to all is a very will-o'-wisp itself, people still go there to look from wise man's view across to Brown Mountain, and when the conditions, whatever they may be, are just right, they see the dancing, flickering, mysterious brown mountain lights that have baffled those who have seen them for many years. And there we go. That's the brown mountain lights, as recorded by John Hardin from The Devil's Tramping Ground and other North Carolina mystery stories. As I was sitting down recording this, reading this, I realized that it didn't tell the two most common folk tales surrounding the brown mountain lights. So what I've done is, in the show notes... I have put those versions from other storytellers in the show notes for y'all to listen to at your own leisure. It's always interesting to me to hear stories, hear folk tales about something you can actually see and experience yourself. If you do happen to go to the Brown Mountain Lights, let me know. Send me an email at appfolklorepod at gmail.com or you can hit me up all over social media. I'm there. I'm present. If you feel like donating some of your hard-earned money to this endeavor of mine, you can reach out to ko-fi.com slash appfolklorepod and buy me a coffee. Should you do so, I will be eternally grateful. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. I really do appreciate you stopping by again this month, and we will see you soon. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website shows.acast.com slash AFP. You can find me at appfolklorepod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening.